so excited to have my next guest on the show, A.X. Foster. He has prosecuted and defended complex homicide trials for over 30 years, and he used his experience and knowledge to write the must-read book, Gavel to Gavel, a legal thriller that you need to pick up today. A.X. Foster, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. How are you doing? I hope you are doing well. Patrick here, host and creator of the Top Rank CJ Evolution Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. We know you're going to love the show. Long-time listener, welcome back, and thank you for your years of support. If you love the show, please share it with family and friends and give us that five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to you the criminal justice professional, whatever you were doing, wherever you were at, thank you for doing it. And remember this, you are honored, cherished, and above all, you are loved. Keep up the great work. And if you are suffering, please reach out to me right now. All calls are confidential, and I can help you get the help you need and deserve at Shatterproof for First Responders at FHE Health. I went through this program amazing program. This is what we do, folks. We help responders get better so they can go on with their lives. All calls are confidential, 303-960-9819. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. Hello, everybody. Very excited to have my next guest, on the show and he knows a thing or two about how the criminal justice system works for over 30 years he's ax foster he's prosecuted and defended complex homicide trials for over 30 years and he lives in the dc area washington dc area and he's here to talk about his book which he's going to tell you about ax thanks for being on the show sir thank you it's a pleasure to be with you well, you have, I mean, we were talking a little bit before we started. I can't imagine, AX, the, the the amount, just the trials you could talk about. And I know you kind of cover some of this in your book, which we're going to talk about. But what, you, what got you from a young age? What made you want to be an attorney? Well, it's really a circuitous story. Um, I went to college to be an actor. And what I wanted to be was a great Shakespearean actor on the stage in New York City. And I was a professional actor for seven years. I appeared on soap operas, TV commercials, all kinds of things. But I was frustrated with that that life. 
and I decided to go to law school so I could become an agent for actors and athletes and artists. So I went to law school to major in sports and entertainment law. Okay, when I got to law school, I fell in love with criminal law and we had some, we had to do moot court, everyone. And I loved it. It's like acting in a little legal drama. So I fell in love with the process. I took an internship at the Cobb County, uh, Georgia DA's office. And I did my first jury trial when I was actually a law student. And then it was game over for me. I really loved the process of being a prosecutor, the competition. I'm highly competitive, helping people, putting uh, somebody's life back in order after they've been victimized, and also putting a dangerous person in jail. Those things all appealed to me. And um, I ended up being a prosecutor for 20 years. I wasn't expecting that, but that's the path I ended up taking. Well, obviously, you're very good at it or you wouldn't have been in that position for over two decades. Now is my, my dad was an attorney. Um, he, he was, uh, he was a lawyer for many years. He's since passed, but he I remember him telling me that law school is hard for some, but not as hard for others. How was your experience? What was your take? Was it difficult for you or was it just kind I, of, I thought it, well, I was terrified the first week because uh, I was, Older, as I said, I took seven years off between college and law school. So I didn't even start law school until I was 29, 30 years old. And there were all these very smart, younger people whose parents were lawyers like you. And and they knew what was happening. And I was just this guy from New York City who went down to Atlanta. And <laughs> I felt like, man, I may not be able to make it, but it's kind of a, a boot camp mentality. <laughs> and I remember the first time I was called on in class to stand up and tell the group about the case assignment we had uh, read the previous night. And I was relaxed. I was funny. I was good on my feet. And I finally felt like, no, well, there's some skill that I have that maybe these younger people don't have who are terrified of public speaking. Yeah. So my acting experience really came in handy, not in terms of acting a character, but in terms of being aware of your environment, presentation skills, uh, oration, um, and you know, arguing in a in a clever way. I don't mean arguing like hostility. But like legally arguing, I felt I had an act for that. And then I felt more confident. And then once we did this moot court thing, I really felt like now I'm, I'm on my home turf. I know how to play characters, to role play. Because when you do the moot court tournament, one day you're the prosecutor, the next day you're the defense attorney, and you keep switching. And you're in a tournament. And I finished first in my law school tournament out of 300 competitors. Uh, so that was the big uh, accomplishment that I was really proud of. And then I got a job as a prosecutor. And as I say, I stayed there for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, well, it, it makes sense. I mean, your experience in acting and, and commercials and, and other uh, thing you did and uh, stuff in film would, would prepare you for being in front of people. 
That's one of the number one fears out there, AX. You know, people getting in front of people and actually having to perform whatever that may look like, speak or whatever. But you you made it you you're 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 very you're correct. And obviously you know this. I mean, the trial process is adversarial. So um, and the listeners probably know that too, where it's this side against that side. What are some of the what are the, some of the more difficult cases that you've dealt with over your career? I mean, a homicide cases, I mean, they're all difficult, obviously. They're all victims and involved in each case. But can you talk about one or two of some of the most difficult trials? Well, you saw? I, I, sure. I've done uh, over 100 jury trials, wow. which is a lot. Uh, that's that's quite a resume. Mostly I did violent crimes. Uh, I specialized in child abuse cases for several oh. years, and those are some of the most difficult uh, you can do, um, particularly if you have a child who is a witness. Now, the, the book that I wrote, it's a novel. It's fiction. Mm -hmm. It's a legal thriller called Gavel to Gavel. And the story in Gavel to Gavel is based on a bunch of different murder trials that I actually did. And I kind of weave them together into a story. And the reader takes the position of a juror. And the reader sees both sides. And by the end of the book, has to make a decision whether they believe that the defendant is guilty or not guilty. But in my book, I feature a, uh, a nine-year-old girl who is the eyewitness to a murder. And, the, and not only is she young, but she has disabilities. Oh, wow. So that's a challenge for a prosecutor to have your whole case sort of hanging in the balance on the testimony of a disabled child. That's the dramatic, wow. you know, exciting incident that starts my story off. Wow. Wow. And it reminds me, I think when you talk about from, you know, you could be the juror in this book, it reminds me, I don't know why, but 12 Angry Men popped into my, the film, you know, from years ago, 12 Angry Men, where they yeah. they get this, you know, trial and it's all yeah. from the perspective of the jury. Absolutely. I love that movie, particularly the original with oh, Henry yeah. Fonda. Absolutely. Uh, and, and they're in, you know, they've changed that because to make it not so, um, misogynistic 12 angry people you know because <laughs> yeah. our jurors are women and ethnicity and diversity we're not just 12 angry white men on the jury anymore but that's a movie from i think the 1950s uh but i love that movie and watched it as a boy many times and uh it did it did get me interested in doing a jury trial and my book kind of borrows a little, a little of that theme where the reader becomes a juror yeah. and they're like, well, the evidence is good, but no, the cross-examination was good. And I try to balance it out. So it's a close call. And then when you get to the end of the book, you're not quite sure, is this person going to be guilty or not guilty? Yeah. So that's yeah. really the, the structure of my book, of my series. I've just finished writing the second book in what is the Seneca County Courthouse series. I just sent my second book off to the publisher to start that long process. But my second book is called Double Blind. And it's wow. about a drug dealer who is murdered and all the problems dealing with corruption, corrupt police. I know you were a police <laughs> officer once and even a corrupt 
a corrupt judge. And I think it's a very interesting uh, sequel to the first book. It's yeah. a series. The prosecutor, Mac McIntyre, is the center uh, character, and then he has a new case in each book. Yeah, and as a prosecutor, AX, I mean, I'm sure you've seen, you can't tell, I mean, corruption, you know, in, in public service over the years to some degree. I mean, I think of, you know, Serpico and the Knapp Commission and all that stuff that came out of, you know, uh, that case. I mean, I, I, I like to think that, you know, while I do believe there are some corrupt police officers out there, I'd like to think the vast majority of them, you know, do a good job and they're honest and fair. But being a prosecutor, you had to have that. Every prosecutor has to have a good relationship with law enforcement, correct? I mean, they're the ones putting the cases, giving them to you, and you're deciding whether or not you're going to you're going to go for it or not. Yes. You know, I've worked with hundreds of police officers. In fact, I married a police officer. <laughs> so I, I know what the cop mentality is like, even though I've never been a cop. I've done a lot of ride alongs. But being a prosecutor is, you know, some people say, oh, you're just a police lawyer, but you have to be neutral uh, I mean, I've been to autopsies. I've been to many crime scenes. I often tell people I'm probably the guy who's seen more dead bodies than anyone in this at this whole party. Absolutely. Unless, you, unless you're unless you're like a soldier or something. But um, yeah, most of the cops in my personal experience are good people who do the right thing, who are honest. But I've also seen some bad cops too. And one thing that has changed in the course of my career and in yours too, is the use of body cam footage. And now we can see what's happening. And you have these landmark cases like George Floyd and like the cops who beat the guy to death in Memphis. And I mean, you just think back to your own experiences. I've seen some things on ride-alongs that you know, if they were captured on video, it would be very bad for the officer in terms of IAD or internal affairs, et cetera. But having said that, in any group of people, you'll have good ones and bad ones. Yeah. All your listeners, whatever they do, doctor, lawyer, plumber, restaurant, you'll have good people and you'll have bad mixed together. It's no different in the police department or on the judiciary or in the prosecutor's office. I, I've seen some really, you know, unethical prosecutors in my time mm -hmm. who would cheat or bend the rules. And that is also a theme in my book. The prosecutor in my book, Mac McIntyre, discovers evidence halfway through the trial that's gonna blow his case apart. He yeah. legally, as you know, has an obligation to turn that over. Uh, yeah. Is he going to, or yeah. is he gonna win his case? <laughs> That, gotta, that's one of the uh, sort now of I gotta, now I got to get your that's book. That's one of the themes in my book, gavel yeah. to gavel. Yeah, and you Fair made enough. a good you made a good point. At, yeah, actually. get this that, book. That's going to be linked up. Everybody who's listening and watching this later on in YouTube, that's going to be linked up in the show notes where you can pick up AX's book. Uh, and you made a really good point about you know a lot of people out there don't realize that prosecutors. I mean, I know this, that they'll go to autopsies, they'll go to crime scenes. They will obviously work closely with the police officers in terms of crime scenes. They have to go to the crime scenes, especially big ones where they should, because they're going to be the ones prosecuting the case. So they have to, 
get a sense of what the crime scene looks like as well as autopsies. And like you mentioned, but a lot of people don't realize how much work goes into prosecuting a case. It's not like, you know, TV shows where you get on there for, you know, an hour and that's just entertainment, but prosecutors do a tremendous job as does the defense. Well, I agree. The, the way our office was, well, this is back in the day of pagers that even predate cell phones. If my pager went off at four in the morning, I knew somebody had just gotten killed and I was being called to a crime scene. Uh, it's important for um, the cops or investigators at a crime scene to have some guidance Absolutely. with legal issues. There might be search and seizure. There might be uh, someone in custody who needs to be advised of his or her Miranda rights. There are, might be uh, forensic things, like maybe you bring in lumin luminol to test for blood or a uh, collection of fingerprints, blood stains, ballistics, what have you. DNA, I did one of the first DNA cases around here going back to 1989. And I also did the first cold case DNA wow. uh, in Maryland. And that's now very commonplace. Yeah. Now they're using genealogical charts to trace family connections. But <laughs> a prosecutor would, I would go to the crime scene and then you see the dead body, but then you also get all the clues. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what do I see? What does this space look like? Because you have to recreate that for the jury. And unless you know what it looks like, smells like, sounds like, I don't think you can bring it back to life adequately months later when you're in a cold courtroom. Yeah, absolutely. And that's another thing that people don't know. And I'm sure the listeners, a lot of them know is, this stuff could take a year to go to trial. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, but the, some of the issues that I always ran into uh, as a, as a young detective and a young patrol officer were fourth amendment issues and chain of custody issues in big cases, you know, fourth amendment, like you mentioned, AX, you know, search and seizure, you know, detainment, uh, of course, Miranda, you know, sixth amendment, fifth amendment. Um, but those are the, some of the issues that I always get, I would initially get hammered on. <laughs> you know, what was the problem? Yeah, well, Did you have PC well, to search? You know, um, all cops have to go through an academy where they yeah. get a quick training on these things. But I think they learn over the course of their career. In my book, um, there's a confession that is suppressed in the early part of the book um, because the police detective did not advise the suspect properly. My book is not so much a whodunit because you know in the beginning it's the little girl's mother who kills the father, but it's a why done it. Yeah. It's all the whole book goes to the issue of intent. Yeah, was she justified in killing this man because he was abusive, or was she killing him to gain something like an inheritance? Yeah. So in my book, I make it a little bit harder for the prosecutor to prove because. The woman confesses, but then that confession is suppressed and the jury will never hear that. That's just a dramatic device wow. to kind of even out yeah. the case and make it more more risky for the prosecutor to take it to trial. But, like but yeah, you, you have those issues. Go, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but like in your book, Gavel to Gavel, I mean, those issues are not, you know, uncommon where a confession gets suppressed because... Usually there's what you tell me, there's usually a custody issue where 
the officer's not, you know, they're getting interrogated and they're getting, you're in custody and they're not getting Mirandized. Yeah, I mean, Fifth Amendment, Miranda, everyone knows just from watching TV, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you. You have the right to a lawyer. If you can't afford one, one will be appointed by the court. That is case law yeah. stemming from the early 1960s, a Florida case involving a guy who didn't have a lawyer. Escobedo. And it changed the way we, yeah, and it changed <laughs> the way that we operate in court. But, you, you know, if your listeners should know, you are not obligated to talk to a police officer. No. Um, you can always decline politely and ask for representation. But Miranda only applies the right, the, these rights only apply if two things are happening. Custodial interrogation. And what does that mean? Well, if you're on the phone, we're doing a Zoom call. I'm not in custody and you're a police officer. I'm not in custody. So anything I say do doesn't need to be Mirandized. Absolutely. So custody, custody, you're in handcuffs. You're in a you're in an interview room. You're not free to leave. And then interrogation is the questioning. Yeah. Sometimes someone will be in custody and they'll blurt out, oh, my God, why did I kill her? That's not in response to any interrogation or questioning. So Miranda doesn't apply. So there are rules. Each state is different. Yeah. There are general rules, but there are lots of exceptions to them as well. Yeah. So anyone out there who gets a call from a cop, you'd be very uh, it would be good advice for you to call uh, counsel before you. Lots of people think I'll go in and explain my side of the story. That's a very bad idea. I agree. I've seen that happen a lot. And then we end up getting, you know, obviously more PC or probable cause to, to make an arrest. But it's amazing to me, AX, um, how many cops, and there are, at least when I was a cop, there were quite a few that didn't realize that you had to have two things present, custody and interrogation, custodial interrogation before Miranda applied. Um I, re I remember arresting a lot of people and sometimes I wouldn't Mirandize them because they weren't in custody. I'm just talking to them and, you know, got enough PC. We're doing an, you know, an investigation right. and they're telling me stuff. And then, okay, now there's enough PC. Turn around, put your hands behind your back. Now, if I wanted to talk to them, as you know, and the listeners know, once they're in custody, then Miranda would apply. Right. But you know what? When I was a prosecutor, we actually coached and taught our top detectives how to create non-custodial environments. For example, if you're not in a uniform, you're not wearing a, a, a weapon, a service weapon, and you tell, you say, come on in, you have a friendly interview Absolutely. room, not some obvious like dungeon. And you, you say, look, <laughs> look, buddy, you're free to go. You're not, you're not in custody. You can leave anytime you want. I just want to make sure, I just want to talk to you about what happened. Hey, you don't need Miranda for that because it's not a custodial setting. Absolutely. So Absolutely. sometimes our cops, the good ones here, would actually create a non-custodial environment because once people hear Miranda, they're like, oh, wow, maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe I need a lawyer. Let's stop. Yeah, you There's know what I mean. Once oh, you advise them oh, of yeah. their rights, your interview's over. Yeah, psychologically, something happens with people, and they're going, "Oh shit, I'm in trouble." 
but you're right. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you're, you're the expert, but I remember getting cross-examined about, okay, how many officers were present? Where did you, and talking about right. possible custody, where did, did you respond with your lights on? Were your light, were you, was your car parked in front of the house? Those could all be custody issues if somebody didn't feel like they could leave freely in their own home. And people are- Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. A lot of a lot of people think, oh, well, I wasn't in handcuffs, so I wasn't in custody. No, custody just means your freedom of movement is absolutely. curtailed. If you're in a locked room, you can't get out. Or if the cop says, or you say to the police officer, can I leave? And and the officer says, no, no, we're not done yet. You're in custody yeah. or sit in the back of the patrol car. And I'll get with you in a minute. I'm going to close the door. <laughs> Man, yeah, yeah, I can't. I can't open it. Now. I can't, can't open it. But getting back to the book, AX, I mean, what? Well, first of all, what compelled you to to, to start writing? What? What? OK, why, go ahead. All right. Well, I've always been interested in writing and reading and even going back to when I was a boy and I read all the hardy boys and then i read my sisters nancy drews oh, i've always looked you know john grisham Scott oh, yeah. Turow, agatha christie those kinds of books always have been my favorites and you know i was busy all this time with law school and a very busy career but when covid hit oh, yeah. around 2020 they shut the courthouse down here for a long time and i figured I might as well write that manuscript that I've always had in the back of my mind. And I wrote, I wrote like a 300 page manuscript and sent it out and people reacted very positively to it and said, you know, you have the authority to write this book because it's, it's based on your real experiences. Absolutely. And then I got a lot of, you know, it took three years for it to go from start to finish, because the publishing uh, industry was something I was unfamiliar with, and agents and publishing and rewriting and formatting and proofreading, and it took forever. But the end result made it all worth it, because I have a really good book out there. It's up on Amazon. It's doing really well. I mean, I had over 3,000 downloads in one day when That's, we released oh, wow. it. People, people like legal thrillers. They Absolutely. like courtroom stories. I mean, there are whole TV networks like Court TV that are devoted to showing trials. And there's always some crazy trial in America. You had the, <laughs> the South Carolina case, Murdoch, where the guy killed his wife and son. Oh, yeah. That was such a freak show. And then we're getting ready to start this case in Idaho with the guy that went in and killed the four college kids. And then you've got Trump. And I mean, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. In America, <laughs> there's always something. So I, I tried to tap into that. You know, Law and Order, TV show, very popular. Yeah. My book is similar to all of those things. And uh, people like a good courtroom story. Um, they, from they, Perry Mason to John Grisham. Well, and, and so on. And, well, and especially from a guy like yourself that has decades of trial experience and prosecutor, you know, prosecutor experience. Like you said, it lends more credibility as some regular writer up there, you know, 
doing some research and putting it together. Of course, you lived it. You breathed it for decades. And I can't imagine you probably got enough material I, to write 20 books, maybe more, maybe more. Well, I, I, I just finished my second and I've got a really good idea for my third. But, you know, that's all I can write about. I yeah. mean, if I wrote a book about astronauts going to <laughs> Mars, it would sound very inauthentic because I don't really know anything about that. I could research it, but I haven't lived it. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people who write legal thrillers, yeah, I mean, some of them are lawyers. Yeah. And some of them are journalists who uh, have researched it. But I'm a prosecutor Absolutely. and a defense attorney, and I bring that to this book. And I think my readers, that the comments on my Amazon page, uh, all talk about uh, how realistic it is. Because I do cross-examination, I pick a jury, I do motions, I do the kind of stuff that really happens. Yeah, and I take a case from start to finish, from gavel to gavel. Yeah. I all like the way from the crime, the night it's committed, all the way to the jury verdict. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I really tried hard to make it based on what I, I know is right. And I, I hope I've done that. I really have tried hard to do that. Well, I can't wait to read it. Uh, I'm going to pick it up. And, yeah, I love the name, by the way, AX. I mean, gavel to gavel. You know, I think that is so cool. Now, what advice would you give to any – aspiring writers out there you mentioned a little bit you know the you know the publishing process and stuff like that i mean what, what advice would you give to a, a possible writer out there because i think everybody most people have a book in them at some point well i mean the first big sort of fork in the road is fiction versus non-fiction absolutely i mean i could have written i could have written my memoirs about <laughs> all the big cases i did but outside of my family, I don't think too many people would have been interested. But fiction allows me to create. And I, as I said, I started out as an actor on the stage. So I have a, a foundation in the creative arts. And I try, some of my book reads like a play yeah. because it's a lot of dialogue. It's cross-examination. And I think I have a good ear for the way people sound and characters. Yeah. I have a judge. I have a defense attorney, you know, the prosecutor. So a lot of what I write as fiction is based on courtroom experience, but it's also based on theater yeah. and drama and understanding what keeps the story moving. Absolutely. So I would say as advice to your listeners who have, think they have a book in them, write what you know. Um, don't don't write about going to the moon. <laughs> write about what you know. And it doesn't have to be a career. It could be something that you've uh, experienced in your family, a life or a death. Uh, a best friend of mine who's writing a book, he just wrote a novel about a 12-year-old boy who goes horseback riding and the horse falls down and breaks its leg and has to be destroyed. And, and how that affected him, you know, post-traumatic stress and some other things. So you don't have to be a courtroom lawyer to have something that's interesting. Yeah. And that's what you can write about. Absolutely. Now you made a comment really quick, AX, about you were a prosecutor for so many years and now you're a defense attorney. We had to talk about this before we started. I mean, that's the track. A lot of prosecutors end up starting their own practice and going to defense, correct? Yes. But what makes 
sort of my path a little different is I stayed as a prosecutor yeah. for 20 years. Absolutely. You know, when you're in law school and you want to be a you want to be a courtroom lawyer, there really are only two paths to getting that fast experience. One is to be a prosecutor. The other is to be a public defender. And in my book, I have a public defender represent the client. But because then you're doing trials, you're doing courtroom day after day after day. And two years as a prosecutor is like 10 years in a law firm (laughs) where you never really go to trial. So to get that, I mean, I did 16 jury trials in one year when I was a young man. That's more than one a month. Um, oh my God. That's there's nowhere else you're going to get that experience. And the more you do these cases, you start to feel more comfortable. You start to see patterns emerge. And when you're a beginning prosecutor and you're in traffic court, your first stop up the, the rungs of the ladder, I mean, you do eight drunk driving trials in front of a judge every week. I yeah. mean, after a month, you've done 25 bench trials. So the learning curve is very, very deep and you learn fast yeah um so yeah those are really the best ways to get courtroom experience um public defender or prosecutor absolutely now being a defense attorney you know all the tricks the prosecutor is going to try to 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 throw at you and say well no 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 i've been down that road i did this for a long time (laughs) well i like to use this analogy pat it's like you played chess with the white pieces for 20 years. And now you turn the board around and you play with the black pieces. I like that. It's the same. It's the same game, but you're looking at it from a different perspective. And one thing I would say beyond just the gamesmanship, which I, which you do learn, it's the personal contacts you make. Absolutely. I mean, I can call up the prosecutor's office and talk to my old colleagues on a first name basis and I get a little home cooking or the judges. I mean, they wanted me to run for judge 15 years ago. Most of the judges where I practice law are people I was a prosecutor with or a friend. Yeah. So when I walk in a courtroom, you know, I'm going to get a little edge when it comes down to credibility because I, I these people know me. They know I'm a straight shooter. I'm not going to lie or cheat or play. And when I say, judge, this is inadmissible, read this case, they're thinking that's probably right because he's not a kind of guy that's going to BS us in a courtroom. So I, if your listeners ever get in trouble, and I hope they never <laughs> do, but stuff happens. <laughs> when you're looking for a lawyer, look at who the former prosecutors are Because I agree with you. I think they definitely have an edge on someone who's just been a defense attorney their whole career. And I love it that you, even though it's fiction, you took your experience and you made it into this legal thriller, Gavel to Gavel, which is going to be, for the listeners, going to be linked up in the show notes. AX, Foster, any final thoughts before we wrap up, sir? Hey, it's been great talking to you. I really appreciate your inside knowledge on the law and law enforcement. <laughs> we speaking the same language. Um, I, I hope my, I hope your listeners will take a stab at gavel to gavel. Uh, Just Google me. It's a X foster. I'm the only one out there and it'll, it'll pop you right up to my a website, axfoster.com. 
And um, it's been great talking to you. And I hopefully I'll come back on when my second book comes out. Absolutely, sir. And it's a pleasure and honor having you on, sir. And thank you for your years uh, of service in the prosecutor's office. And for the listener, like I said, everything's going to be linked up in the show notes. Thank you, AX. And I hope to have you back on soon.